Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and it is Wednesday. Um, it's looking like it's going to be in the 90s today, so not too thrilled there. I I went out and got a long run in yesterday because I was like, there is no way you're going to get me out there today. Even this morning at, I think it was like at 8.30, it was already like 85, so no gracias. No gracias. Um, anyways, I hope everyone is having a great week so far. Lots going on in the news, so I am, I've kind of picked some of the things that I, I at least think, in my opinion, are important to discuss. Obviously, we have a lot of primary results in from yesterday, so I want to go over some of the most important ones and the ones that might have big impacts on the midterms. As I've talked about a lot, the midterms are kind of going to be a crucial time for democracy, like it or not. Not, not like the best situation we're in, but I would say the, the results were pretty mixed in the midterms. There was some good news and then some awful news, as usual. Um, Again, don't mind the noise on the street. I'll try to do my best to keep it down, but living on a busy street, never fun. So anyways, I wanted to just give a few thoughts on Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Um, it's been covered at nauseum, so I'm really not going to focus on it today. But I just wanted to give a few little reactions. Is First off, I'm kind of torn about it because I really think that if an American leader wants to go to Taiwan... They should, considering that, as I've talked about for decades, our strategic ambiguity has been kind of chaotic, but also we have been giving them weapons and money for decades. So it's not like we're just leaving them alone, right? And I think more what, like all this chaos with China getting pissed off, a lot of people on the Biden team saying she shouldn't go, I think all this chaos, what it really shows me is basically that the United States, again, needs to have better policies towards Taiwan. I think all this strategic ambiguity and all this just kind of gray, gray policy around Taiwan has made it so if someone like Nancy Pelosi, who's the third in line to be president, if someone like her goes to Taiwan, no one really knows what to do about it. You know, there's just crazy overreactions. And so my opinion is, is that this is just, again, a symptom of our problematic policies involving Taiwan. And back in May, I talked about this then, and I will say it now. I think we need to be more clear on our alliances with Taiwan. And I know that's going to piss off China, but China's already pissed about it. So I don't really know what the, what the end goal is here, I guess I would say. And so that's why I'm torn is because, honestly, I think she should be able to go to Taiwan if she wants. I mean, we do send them money. We are allies with them. We do need them for chip production, even though we are, you know, we are bolstering chips in other parts of the world now, but you know what I mean. I think a leader should be able to go there. Then on the other side, though, I guess the question is, why is she going there? And that's where I think it gets a little bit tough, because is it worth going there? Because we know Chinese elections, are, elections with quotes, are coming up fairly soon, and obviously Xi has a lot of you know internal problems right now with the lockdowns, the economy, China's housing market is shrinking or I would say just completely collapsing. And I think I saw like 40% decrease since the pandemic. And so China's kind of um, on edge right now. And so is it really worth going there at this time unless you're going there for a reason? I don't know. I don't know. But I could understand the criticism. I really can. If she's going there for good reasons, I'm fine with it. But also, she is known to like to fly around and be seen talking to people and doing these big photo shoots. Like, she is someone who likes attention, as I'm, as I'm sure a lot of us know. And so, if she's just going there for that, maybe she can wait. Now, also, it seems like the Biden administration's like, please don't go, Nancy. Come on. 
But then you have to wonder, I mean, Biden for months has basically said, like, you know, we would defend Taiwan with military if anything happened. He's He's been much more open about our relationship with Taiwan than ever before. So does Biden know about this? But then his, his uh, staff are saying he needs to keep this on the DL. I don't know. I really don't know. Um, it's just interesting. I like just I've, I've just been following this, but I'll just reiterate that I think it's mainly that we have just a very lackluster policy with with um, China involving Taiwan, and this is just showing all the fractures in that policy. And now, I wanted to turn this into like some different thoughts that I kind of have is that seeing seeing Pelosi flying there and looking all you know foreign a missionary type of look. Um, I, I wonder, there's an idea that maybe Pelosi could be an ambassador for somewhere if she were to lose her speakership in November. And so when I see her flying over there, I go, maybe this is her testing her time to be an, uh, an ambassador. And I, I did see an article in The, in the Economist. Um, I was reading it in the sauna a few days ago. Sauna, sauna tales. Um, but anyways, it was about um, Villa Taverna, which is the American ambassador's residence in Rome, is apparently still vacant. It's still empty, and there's no ambassador living there. And from what I've gathered, it's kind of weird. Like, you would think Biden would have appointed someone there because it's like seven acres. There's like a sarcophagus there, a bunch of ancient architecture. Great place. I mean, God, I would kill for that spot right now, especially with how the world's going. I love Rome, man. I would... I would in a heartbeat go back and, you know, live in a seven acre villa in Rome. Jesus. Like, so it's, you know, besides my, my rantings for wanting to go back to Europe, um, it, it's just interesting because it's probably like one of the best deals um, to, be, to be an ambassador, you know, some sort of political patronage, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's just weird. And the Economist notes and quotes here, some capital uh, criminologists, excuse me, suspect that the vacancy heralds a generational change in the Democratic leadership of Congress after the midterms in autumn. They note that Nancy Pelosi, not only the first woman to be Speaker of the House, but also the first Italian-American, could be a fine emissary to Rome. And, you know, it, it is an interesting point. Like, okay, there's a big chance that she's not going to be Speaker after the midterms unless something miraculous happens, and I don't see that happening. And so you go, okay, maybe you want to kind of find new blood. You kind of want to start getting some young, fresh faces in there. What do you do? How, how do you get people like Pelosi to maybe start thinking about retirement? Oh, we have an empty villa that the ambassador to, to Rome would, would be in. Maybe you should uh, take this one, Nancy. You are Italian-American, quite a fine statesman. Let's, let's send you there, you know? Um, so I, I know that's not directly about Taiwan, but I don't want to stay on Taiwan long because... Almost everyone's covered at this point, like I said, but it is interesting like to see Pelosi in these roles because I, I truly believe that maybe the Biden administration is going to put her in as an ambassador to somewhere and try to maybe get rid of her out the door because, you know, you just keep reading about how the Democratic Party needs a farm team. They need some fresh faces. Like, I know the Republicans are old, too, especially like the Mitch McConnells and the Chuck Grassleys and blah, 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 but... There are some there is some young talent in the Republican Party and by talent I mean crazy people that are are popular and the Democrats have some of that but maybe maybe Pelosi should should become an ambassador. But anyways, the Taiwan stuff's crazy. Uh China's, you know, um, I think it's the Global Times said she better hope her plane doesn't get shot down or something. I don't see that happening. It's fear-mongering, but it's an interesting time to be going there for sure.
So the United States killed the leader of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawari, um, in a drone strike, I guess, last weekend in Kabul. And I will say this is a guy who since his, I think he was born in 1951, has really evaded death. He's, he's been really, really efficient at evading death. I was reading that apparently the U.S. since like the mid-2000s, like 2005-ish, has thought that he'd been killed or dead multiple times. They thought maybe they got him in a drone strike or an invasion. There were sometimes reports that he died of disease. And every time he would reemerge in some video and people were like, holy shit, like, is this guy a ghost? Is he invincible? Like what? And well, he was finally killed at 71. And I want to talk in a little bit about why it's good he's dead, but why I think his assassination doesn't really matter for global jihad. But first, I do want to give a background on him because I think he's an interesting tale of how this new kind of jihadist movement really got going following the Muslim Brotherhood, Mujahideen, and then going into the late, two, or late 1900s into the 2000s. And so, so um, yeah, al-Zawari, um, he was born in, in Giza, Egypt, and like his buddy, Osama bin Laden, they were close, by the way, um, he was born to a very well-off family. And he became a doctor, and he served in the military. He obviously did not join jihad like some of the people we see in ISIS now, where they join out of desperation. No, this was a guy, went to medical school, was in the military, had clearly enough money to do something else. But he also, I think, is a sociopath, which we'll get into later. But him being Egyptian is actually quite important because he was... He was coming into adulthood um, kind of when the Muslim Brotherhood was really getting big. And he joined the Brotherhood from which, from what I remember from my undergraduate classes, because we, we, I did take some classes on, on um, Islam in the West, and the, the Brotherhood was kind of, from what I've gathered, pretty big on recruiting educated and wealthy members. You know, just in a sense, it probably does help with legitimacy, I would imagine. I would imagine, sorry. And it was quite a radical movement that just kind of opposed a lot of the way people like Anwar Sadat, the leader of Egyptian, and others at the time. It was kind of the first of kind of a unified radical movement that really got political power going forward. And so, yeah, so back to our friend al-Zawari. He joins the Muslim Brotherhood, and the whole movement kind of gained notoriety when they did kill Anwar Sadat, who was the Egyptian president, and I believe they killed him in like 1980, 1981. And I guess from here, from what I've gathered, al-Zawari basically went further. Like the Muslim Brotherhood wasn't extreme enough. And he went down this new path of jihadic, jihad extremism, Islamic jihad. And I don't actually know if he was part of the assassination, but apparently from reports from The Economist, uh, he bounced around Pakistan for a while, made some lovely friends there, and uh, he was eventually arrested and sent back to Egypt. And I don't know if you guys have ever read about some of these prisons they had. They're usually like small cells involved with daily torture. And I think the idea from what I've gathered from Egyptian authorities, because they were quite militaristic, and uh, I guess you could say sometimes sadistic, was um, it, they were kind of just trying to like beat the jihad out of you and like really try to get you reformed through having just brutal oppression in prison. And from my understanding, many people that knew al-Zawari um, said that he was actually made more extreme. Like his extremism got much worse while he was in these Egyptian prisons. And it's interesting because there's actually reports of a lot of these individuals who are in prison for jihad or assumed terrorism and 
due to the torture and the time alone and the time of introspection, they actually end up leaving and doing something else, right? Moving on. And it seems like Al-Zawari was the opposite and got more radicalized. And from there, he met bin Laden in the 80s. Bin Laden was, you know, part of the Mujahideen movement uh, with the ISI and the Pakistanis helping the United States, right, fight the Russians in Afghanistan. And obviously, Al-Qaeda kind of comes out of that movement. The Taliban also comes out of the Mujahideen. And that gets us somewhat to to where I think the alliance sort of happened. Um, The Economist notes that bin Laden was the charismatic face of Al-Qaeda, but al-Zawari was the brain. And so once the Taliban forms, the Mujahideen form, um, or or, sorry, the Taliban forms out of the Mujahideen, um, bin Laden's forces eventually join with with al-Qaeda's as well. And a lot of experts believe that al-Zawari was actually the real mastermind behind the September 11th attacks. And something else is that I learned that's pretty interesting about him is that apparently he helped promote the notion of takfir, by which Muslims could be declared apostates and thus valid targets for extremists. So he was one of the guys that really like pushed forward the idea that your own Muslim community can be used as targets for extremists. Um, not, not a great guy. Um, <laughs> Not a great guy is what I would say. Now, since the CIA apparently offed him in Kabul, the Taliban are clearly not thrilled. Um, I guess, yeah, if you're harboring a guy or not, or they claim to not be, but let's be honest, they probably are. Um, the Taliban issued a statement condemning the, ta- the attack, um, saying in quotes, repeating such actions will damage the available opportunities. Nice and vague and nefarious. Um, I'm assuming by opportunities they mean negotiations. I guess, but to be honest, I don't know if negotiations are doing well. Like, obviously, the Taliban wants stability and some some um, some betterance on on economic sanctions. They don't want the country to have this big starvation issue. But but the Taliban aren't really helping themselves right now, right? They're being a complete pain in the ass, in my opinion. And the Atlantic brings up a good point. And there's an article from him, I think it was yesterday, that mentions that the Taliban are already, you know, on Twitter just whining about violations of the Doha agreement, which we signed, which would basically show show us to find some sort of mutual agreement with the Taliban as long as they didn't harbor terrorists. Um, because at Doha, they, they, they promised not to host any terrorists. But of course, you know, we just killed a huge, one of the most wanted men in the world in Kabul. So they don't really have a lot of standing to complain about the killing, right? And so it brings up questions like, did, did pulling out of Afghanistan do anything? What were we doing in Afghanistan for 20 years? Because once we left, we finally killed one of the main orchestrators of 9-11. So like, what were, what were we doing there prior? Um, also, are the Taliban going to change anything? Is Afghanistan just going to become, once again, a country that just harbors extremists and just a no man's land of chaos and anarchy? You know, there's a lot of questions here. Um, but it, it does show me that we can still get people... <laughs> That is for sure, even if we're not in Afghanistan. But then again, I ask, why were we there in the first place? Because we could have just done this type of stuff without ever being there, in my opinion. The last thing I will say is that obviously this guy was bad. He should have been killed, in my opinion. Obviously, he didn't get due process. They didn't send him to court. A lot of the other 9-11 contributors or co-conspirators, whatever you want to call them, are still rotting in Guantanamo. 
I'm okay with this guy being killed. I'll just say it. Uh, I think he has, you know, thousands of lives on his hands. So, yeah, that's fine with me. The problem, though, here, and this is not like a but type of thing. It's just like, let's be honest. Jihadism has really changed. And Al-Qaeda's reemerging again, especially in parts of Africa, I've seen. But the, the jihadism that al-Zawari was part of is kind of the old guard. And it's been left behind by more extreme and I guess you could say productive jihadism, if that's what you want to call it. Um, but he really hasn't been that influential in close to a decade. Like, he's not the main guy anymore. And what I mean here is that we have to remember that the Islamic State, ISIS, ICE, whatever you, ISIL, whatever you want to call it, actually broke from al-Qaeda because they weren't extreme enough. Um, because instead of focusing on the West, IS wanted to focus on causing terror and fear in the Middle East and other Arabic parts of the world. That's why we see them really involved in Iraq, Syria, places like that. And The Economist notes here in quotes, in establishing a physical caliphate in the Muslim heartland, IS appeared to have succeeded where Al-Qaeda focused on the far enemy of America and its Western allies. And I, I will say that ICE obviously is struggling now because obviously the caliphate could only expand so much before there was pressure. It wasn't a perfect movement. We could go on and on about that. And like I said, Al-Qaeda has been busy in parts of Africa and the Middle East again. But... It just doesn't seem like the views of al-Zawari anymore are really what's driving jihadism. Um, there's a guy, Grime Wood, who wrote an interesting book, which I read some segments on, called The Way of the Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State. And he notes in quotes here, and deal with me, it's kind of long, Zawari's replacement will be younger and more energetic than the old doctor. I wish... That a younger man, I wish that younger man a short and skittish life, but the truth is that Al-Zawari's killing probably will not have much effect on global terrorism, because the younger jihadist generation has already ceased to regard him as a leader, spiritual or otherwise. Al-Zawari's crowning achievement, the September 11th tax, was ultimately a one-off, and its plotters spent most of their lives on the run or bored senseless in Guantanamo Bay. The jihadist movement has achieved something new, and it was the Islamic State, which ridiculed Zawari called him a goofball and a geezer, and set out on a path of wanton destruction against his orders. It mocked him for his deference to the Taliban and for swearing allegiance to its founder, Mullah Omar, who turned out to have been dead for years. <laughs> Many of the possible successors to al-Zawari have already spit, split off into other jihadist groups and have long been trying to bring about carnage and uh, terrestrial paradise without, without al-Qaeda's consent. They certainly will not seek the consent of his concessor, successor. Sorry. And yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I think it's a really good point. And again, this is not downplaying that this guy was killed. I, I support the Biden administration for doing this. But to me, it's not as exciting as when bin Laden was finally taken out. Um, this guy shouldn't. Yeah, like obviously karma got this guy here. But I don't think much is going to change in the realm of terrorism. Like that segment I read said is that this guy was kind of considered the old school for a long time. And jihadism has moved on now. Of course, you know, Fox News, people like Tucker Carlson are making fun of this move and saying the world isn't any better. They're just attacking Biden for political reasons here, obviously. You know, if Trump did this, they would be celebrating. So to me, it's not the political side. It's just it's just it's more complex than that. I want to do a bit about the primary results that occurred yesterday, Tuesday, throughout the United States. There were some pretty big ones. Missouri, Michigan, Kansas, Arizona, Washington as well. Um, starting with Kansas, I was fairly surprised when I went to bed last night and I saw on my phone that Kansans 
actually voted to protect abortion rights in the state constitution. And this was after I kept seeing how bad things were looking in Indiana, for example, where they might completely outlaw it. And The Guardian discusses how this is a big blow for the pro-life movement, at least right now. And it writes in quotes here, Kansas, a deeply conservative and usually reliably uh, Republican state, is the first U.S. state to put abortion rights to a vote since the U.S. Supreme Court ruled to overturn constitutional protections for abortion law in June. End quotes. And it is honestly pretty wild because Kansas will kind of now serve as one of the only abortion havens or safe zones in the entire Midwestern region. I think Illinois, if my memory serves me correctly, is the only other one. So it is kind of wild, and it's Kansas. And I don't know that much about Kansas, I will admit. But you don't think of Kansas as being some, you know, pro-choice state. And it's, it's not. It's not. But I think it does show us how a backlash can happen. A few more things on this, too, is that the No campaign, which was the one protecting abortion rights, was strongly ahead with about 62% of the vote voting in favor of protecting abortion rights. And also, apparently, turnout was very high, higher than usual. And many people were just also, I think there's a lot of reasons why turnout was high. First off, it was because of this just radical attempt to outlaw abortion. But also, a lot of people were just plainly pissed off at the Kansas Republican legislature because of abortion, election lies, misinformation. There's a lot of a lot of irritation at them. And that's going to be interesting to see if other states this happens at. Um, you know, high, high turnout of single-issue voters, maybe, who are voting against the Republicans. Is it guns, abortion, January 6th, whatever? It could hurt the party. And if I was a Republican strategist, I would maybe say this is something we need to focus on before the midterms. But just to be fair, I think the National Review does think this is not worth celebrating yet. Um, part of the article discusses how Kansas is fairly pro, pro-life, pro um, but due to the recency of the Roe decision and the extreme nature of the bill, which was looking to ban pretty much all abortion, it kind of turned people off and turned them out to vote. And the, the National Review article argues that pro-lifers ought to come back in a few years with another initiative, maybe establishing a gestational limit on abortion at 15 weeks. Right. And the article is kind of a word salad, but I think it is true that this was such an extreme bill and people are it's so recent in people's memories. And even even a lot of pro-lifers don't just want to completely enforce this on everybody. So I don't know if this is a good example of what's going to happen in the long term, but at least for the midterms, I don't agree with this article because I think for the midterms, this actually could really hurt Republicans. And that's just something we're going to have to watch and see. But moving on to Michigan. It looks like Peter Meyer, who I'm a huge fan of, I know I've said that before, has lost to first-time Congressman John Gibbs. On Monday, I kind of ranted a bit about how the Democrats are spending campaign dollars in support of people like Gibbs and Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania because they want to beat the crazy person. They think it's easier for their candidate to beat the crazy person than the sensible person. Again, I will say, in a normal time, maybe. But we have to remember that the crazies have pretty much taken over the party. So it's really not guaranteed that just by bolstering a crazy one, the Democrats have a chance. I really don't buy that at all. And anyways, um, Meyer was rightfully angry about this. And I get it. And I, you know, it's, it's a shame, actually, because he's really smart. Uh, he's fairly moderate. And he voted to impeach Trump, even though he was a fur. He was he literally was just sworn in r- when January 6th happened. So. One of the first things he did as a congressman was vote to impeach Trump. And he's just another one of these people who spoke out against Trump and voted for their conscience, who is now gone. 
And, you know, he's an interesting guy. He worked in military intelligence. I believe worked with the CIA. He's an heir to the Meyer family fortune, which they're big grocery stores in parts of the Midwest. We don't have them in the West, so people aren't probably aware of them. But he had a lot of name recognition, um, big family, and seemed like a just decent guy. I've seen him on the Fifth Column podcast a few times, and seems like a fun guy. Um, but now Democrats are going to have to run against Gibbs, no matter what. And he is a Trump-backed election denier, so have fun with that. He's a neophyte as well, not a lot of experience except for misinformation and lies. And CNN makes a good point, writing, Democrats played a role in boosting Gibbs, a calculated decision that has become a flashpoint, angering some Democrats and anti-Trump Republicans. Yep, that is correct, CNN. And in a statement, Meyer said, I'm proud to have remained true to my principles, even when doing so came at a significant political cost. I read. Um, I also read a great piece on Meyer back over the winter. I think it was in the Atlantic, and it looked at how Meyer was a bright star after getting elected in the 2020 election. But you know, he voted. He voted to impeach Trump, and he got death threats, criticism. He was censured by the Michigan Republican Party, and then voters started turning on him, uh, which seems to be the case, right? This very strange authoritarian silencing of the party that's supposed to be about free speech. Anyways. Um, Democrats are running against Gibbs. Not not good news. I could see Gibbs winning this, to be completely honest. I just want to end at least the Michigan segment by reading what Myers said in an online essay. I believe it was on, I believe it was the Monday one. He said in quotes, Democrats are justifying this political jujitsu by making the argument that politics is a tough business. I don't agree, but that toughness is bound by certain moral limits. Those who participated in the attacks on the Capitol, for example, clearly fall outside those limits. But over the course of the midterms, Democrats seem to have forgotten just where those limits lie. Then Meyer added that Republican voters will be blamed if any of these candidates are ultimately elected. But there is no doubt that Democrats' fingerprints will be on the weapon. We should never forget it. And to be honest, guys, I, I completely agree with him. I think it's careless. And you know, like, you... It just seems hypocritical to me because you have the Democrats so focused on January 6th, which I, I think they should be. You guys know my opinion on that. But at the same time, they're willing to almost bolster a guy who believes the January 6th was fine, a guy who believes the election was stolen. It's insane. It's completely insane. And again, the Democrats are so bad at politics. Like, they need to win these. And I would, again, rather a moderate versus a moderate instead of now this Gibbs guy or Mastriano for the governor of Pennsylvania, a swing state. Moving on, before my pulse gets too high here, moving on to Missouri, I cannot really tell if this is good news, a true victory, or just some strange Pyrrhic victory, but Eric Greitens, the asshole Eric Greitens, did lose. Remember, he had that rhino hunting video about a month or so ago, I think, where it pretty much justifies political violence. He had an embezzlement scandal where he had to resign as governor of, of Missouri. And apparently he is known for tying down and beating his wife and kids. Um, he also blackmailed his mistress. Bad guy, bad guy. Um, and Yahoo News notes that Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt won the Republican primary for the U.S. Senate on Tuesday with surprising ease, ending months of worry among GOP leaders that scandal-scarred former governor Eric Greitens might win the primary. And the article also notes in quotes here, with nearly 90% of results in, Schmidt had more votes than his nearest two competitors combined, turning what was expected to be a tight race into a blowout, which is honestly kind of surprising to me because I think all the coverage of Greitens made it sound like he had a better chance than he did. I guess 
hats off somewhat to the voters. You didn't vote for the crazy one. Because Trump, I think it was yesterday, said he endorsed Eric, which was kind of ironic because both candidates, Eric Greitens and Eric Schmidt, it's kind of funny, I guess. I think it just showed that Trump wasn't willing to pick one of them. He, he was just like, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to endorse Eric, and we'll see which Eric wins. Um, so I guess that's good, right? Greitens is awful and dangerous, and I guess the people rejected that. I'm sure Mitch McConnell's also happy, <laughs> which I don't care about, but I'm sure he is. And Greitens is weird, man. He went from a hardcore Obama supporter who apparently was like in tears at Obama's first inauguration former Navy SEAL, Rhodes Scholar, soccer fan. Um, but like a lot of these MAGA types, he kind of went on a journey um, and became this. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he really confuses me more than a lot. Like he had a friend who wrote an op-ed, forget the friend's name, but he wrote an op-ed basically like, I don't know what happened to my friend, but he's lost and he should not be in office. He's dangerous. Seems to be a trend anyways. Um, now this guy Schmidt is not really much better, right? He's definitely politicized the attorney general role while while being ag in missouri he has let's see here sued china over the coronavirus very productive um he's also schooled or su sued school districts over mask mandates and the city of st louis over its plan to provide one million dollars for women to travel out of state for abortions that none of this surprises me and he's definitely on Trump's side as well, because he was happy to get that Trump endorsement when Trump said Eric. So, yeah, I mean, nothing really to celebrate here, but he's not Greitens, so it's a kind of a Pyrrhic victory, I guess we will say. So, moving on to Arizona. It seems to be the hot zone for crazies. Blake Masters, the venture capitalist who was endorsed by Trump, and also by uh, Peter Thiel, who went from libertarian to far-right nationalist. He did win, so he is going to be going against Mark Kelly, the astronaut, the Democrat, moderate. Um, I would argue Blake Masters is probably one of the most extreme people that has been put forth in any of these Senate races. And it's worrying, I guess, because Mark Kelly, I like Mark Kelly, but he's kind of quiet and milk toast and doesn't speak up much, and I don't really know how popular he is. Kirsten Cinema is really popular with Republicans in Arizona. Mark Kelly, they don't talk about much, and so this seems like one where Masters could really ride the Trump wave and the anger and the grievance, the culture war, and do well. The New York Times has a good article on Masters. It writes that he is engaged in some of the same grievance-mongering that Trump does, but it's actually trumped up, no pun intended. And it also writes here in quotes, Mr. Masters is unthinkably a figure of the new right, militant, internet-savvy culture warriors who position themselves as insurgent challengers of the scholatoric establishment in both parties. No longer doctrinaire libertarians, they see coercive state power as an indispensable tool for achieving conservative ends, mandating patriotic curriculums in school, supporting the formation of native-born families, banning abortion and pornography, and turning back the rights revolution for LGBTQ Americans. Lovely stuff, but it is true. It's again this nationalist authoritarian conservatism that is somewhat new on this national scale. And he's really one of those libertarians who who's pretty much gone on a journey again <laughs> that's led to nationalism and extreme values. He also has this fighting rhetoric. Um, he doesn't seem to believe, he, he believes Democrats are the problem for everything. And you know, that, that stuff, um, it, it could be dangerous over time. I remember reading that when he went to Stanford for law school, he, that's where he met Peter Thiel and seemed to really get inspired. Um, yeah, and from my understanding, also the problem with people like Masters is that they are drawing on this vision for the country 
that sees democracy more as an obstacle than a value. And they also see Democrats as an obstacle. So it's scary. Uh, I hope he loses to Mark Kelly. We will see. And in another chaotic race in Arizona, there's more bad news. <laughs> the Wall Street Journal notes that Mark Fincham, and this guy's a lot, who has acknowledged an affiliate, affiliation with the far-right Oath Keepers and was backed by Trump, won a crowded primary for the GOP's Secretary of State. And I keep saying this, but I will say it again. This is the position we do not want someone like Mark Fincham to have because he is, in, he is actually involved in the certification of votes. He can appoint people for the system. The Secretary of State is important. And if this guy wins, it's not even the far-right Oath Keepers that scares me the most. It's his election denialism and what if Carrie Lake then becomes governor. And let's move on to Carrie Lake. She is the, the last one that I'll just touch on today that I think is troubling. She's uh, the far-right Trumpy election denier, Arizona gubernatorial race candidate. I should note that by the time this comes out, the results could be done. But right now, Carrie Lake has a small lead over Karen Robson, who, as I've, I think I've mentioned this, is Carrie Lake endorsed by Trump, Karen Robson, who's a property developer endorsed by Mike Pence. You kind of have a quasi-feud going on. Carrie Robson, Karen Robson, sorry, is like, eh, very milquetoast. Uh, I, I'm not like a crazy fan of her either, but she's definitely better. Carrie Lake, uh, a lot, a lot to say, but I'll wait. But part of me wonders, okay, we're close. 79% of the vote has been counted as I'm recording this. And part of me wonders, what happens if Lake loses because of mail-in voting? Does she claim fraud and start an all-out big lie? Or what if she wins due to mail-in voting? Then is it fine? Because remember, her whole thing is about election integrity. The election was stolen. Like, her only policy is that we need to get rid of mail-in voting and, um, and hold, hold more audits, election integrity. Like, that's all she's running on. It'd be kind of ironic if somehow she, like, wins because of mail-in voting or loses, and then it's like a civil war in between her and, and uh, Karen Robson. But I'll just add that this election is kind of a big deal for democracy again. Karen Lake, Carrie Lake is insane. She's, again, I've been saying this too much, but she's one of those people who went on a journey from liberal to far-right nut. Obama supporter who went to drag shows to far-right nut. There's a picture of her with a drag drag queen at a show, which is ironic, and now she's saying it's a fake picture, but I've seen it. It doesn't look fake to me. She's just uh, been on a journey. And the problem with Carrie Lake is that she is a, or was a popular news anchor in Arizona, so she has name recognition. People know her and like her and remember her. And that really could get people out, right? Now, she has no policies, like I said, but that recognition could get her across the finish line for the Republican primary. And on that note, I'll say just because the res like even though the results are not in, I do see her beating Robson. Robson just seems like an eh kind of candidate, and Carrie Lake has that recognition. She's endorsed by Trump. She's crazy. She's demagogic. And yeah, it's problematic. Anyways, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of a mixed bag here. Like, Kansas is good news, but the rest of it just shows that I think MAGA's here to stay, even with Trump sidelined. And the problem is, is if Trump-endorsed candidates do well in the midterms, I think it shows that Trump will want to continue doing what he's doing. We kind of need the MAGA-inspired candidates to do poorly for maybe Trumpism to slowly fade, but it's not looking that way. Anyways, have a great day. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, YouTube, Podbean, Spotify, all that jazz. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram. Let me know your thoughts. Have a great day. I'll be back Friday. Peace.